As we uh, come to the scripture, let me ask you please now uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, it's amazing to us uh, that Christ has come and that he's risen. It's amazing to us that you have given to us your word. And so I pray, uh, God, that you would enable us to hear it, uh, to understand it, uh, to receive it, to believe it. And this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to John in chapter 20. And John in chapter 20, please. I want to read the first 10 verses. John chapter 20, please. Hear the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they had not uh, understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. When it happened, that is the resurrection of Jesus, at least according to the New Testament documents, uh, well over a hundred times in the New Testament is it, is, is it mentioned, this resurrection of our Lord Jesus. On some occasions it's the actual event of resurrection of Jesus. Uh, On other times, it's used to make a point, to to affirm a point. This is true because Jesus has risen from the dead. Other times, we find it simply as attached to the the name of Jesus. Uh, The scripture will read along, and you'll find Jesus Christ, comma, whom God raised from the dead. It's there. Uh, It's the climax, really, of the Gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read through it, you find, ah, he's risen. Uh, Jesus himself said that he would, and so when we get to that point in the Gospels, it's a a good thing that he does, because if he hadn't, we'd wonder if he was really telling the truth, if he really knew what he was doing, but it's the climax there. We we find as well when we come into the book of Acts that lays out the life of of the first church, the early church, we find that in fact, yes, this Christ has risen. That's the guts, really, of the message. In fact, Luke, who wrote Acts, speaks to us of the mission, or the calling really, at least in those early days, months, years of the church, the calling of an apostle. And it was to bear testimony of the resurrection of Christ. For instance, Luke puts it like this in Acts chapter 4. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and and great grace was upon them. I mean, that was what amazed them. That's what they spoke about. When, When Peter preached that first sermon on what was that Jewish holiday of Pentecost. When Peter preached that sermon, he he didn't speak much at all about the character of Christ. He could have. He could have spoken of his compassion and his mercy and all of that, but but he didn't. 
He didn't, he didn't speak of the great authority with which Jesus taught. He could have, but what he spoke of was that Jesus had died and God raised him from the dead. In fact, Paul, Peter's appeal on that day that they are to repent, believe, be baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit, his whole appeal on that day was on the basis of the fact that Jesus had died and risen. And so everything hinged, you see, on this rising of Jesus. We read through the epistles, we find that, 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 that clearly in all of the letters of the New Testament, well, we, we find this emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, he is indeed alive. And what really could explain the change in these cowardly men, these disillusioned men, these discouraged men, these men that were about to go back to their normal life, that life before that they had met Jesus, what would explain the change, the transformation, to, to go from those men in hiding to men out in the open proclaiming that Jesus Christ was the Lord even when it caused their persecution short of something miraculous like this? They claimed it was because they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. In fact, even those who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, even those who don't believe he was really bodily resurrected and all of that, say that something must have happened to these men and it must have been related to Jesus. They would ascribe it most likely to some kind of vision or hallucination that they so wanted Jesus to be alive that they saw him and it changed their lives. But that's not how they put it. How they put it was that they had seen the risen the risen Christ. Now, of course, not everyone believed. In fact, Matthew lays it out like this in Matthew chapter 27, verse 16, the very uh, end of his gospel, right before the Great Commission is given. Uh, Jesus, the risen Jesus, assembles, verse 16. Matthew 28, I'm sorry, I may have said 27. Matthew 28. So now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I mean, there he was, but yet still some doubted. Some didn't, some didn't believe. And why not? Well, well, think about it. Give them some grace here in the sense that how hard is it for us to conceive of someone who was dead and now who is alive? I have to tell you that when I do a funeral, and I don't mean to be indelicate here, but when I do a funeral, it never ceases to cross my mind as I look at a casket and I think, what would I do if the person got up? And I have to be honest with you, I can't even picture it. I have no category in my brain for that. None of us really does. I mean, that's sort of like a once in a history of the world event, right? I mean, it isn't something that happens. Well, it isn't something that happens. The people rise from the dead, and yet there he was, risen from the dead. And, and what would you be thinking? Could you doubt your own vision at that point? How could this really be true? And then all that it means, of course, we understand the nature of sin and, and how that can affect all of this, but, but, but still, the, the difficulty of, of believing believing that. You see, in the culture of the day, the Greeks had, had really no good sense of a rising from the dead because for them, that which was material wasn't valuable. Why would anyone want a body? 
And, and for the Jews, there was, there was great debate about whether or not there is a resurrection from the dead for human beings at all. Some believed, some didn't believe. And, but for those who did believe, they, they, in their minds, if that resurrection happened, it would be a general resurrection. It would be at the end. It, it would be when everything is consummated. It wouldn't be one guy, no matter what was said about him, raised from the dead. Nobody had a category in their brain that this resurrection would happen. In fact, remember, Jesus told his disciples uh, various times that he was raised from the dead, but, but they were most surprised. And sometimes we read those passages and we think, why were they so surprised? Well, think of it. Somebody says they're going to the grocery store. You say, okay, I get what that means. Somebody says they're going to go here. Oh, I get what that means. Somebody says I'm going to rise from the dead. I don't think you get what that means. And so they didn't, you see. So not everyone believed. And over the course of history, there's all kinds of tales and all kinds of reconstructions. Is, is how, can we, how can we account for this event or, I'm sorry, how can we account for these disciples and, and everything that transferred, from, transformed from their lives? How can, we, how can we get from that to the fact that he didn't really rise? I mean, how can we reconstruct a story to, 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 to show what could be true in their lives, but yet Jesus didn't really rise? But you see, the Bible, the Scripture knows nothing of that. The Scripture lays out as clearly as it can in every way they can possibly help us to see that this is an historical event, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We have four Gospels. Every one of them accounts for this rising of Jesus. Now, they speak of it, as they do other things, in a little different ways. But see, that helps us. It helps us to have four Gospels, each with different twists and turns on the life of Jesus and what he did and what he said and how he said it and where he went and even the description, if you will, of all the things around the, the, the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason that's helpful to us, the reason that gives credibility, is that these aren't four guys who got together to concoct a story and say, let's all say it the same way. They were each one writing as they understood, writing as they remembered, Writing, as they had done, according to Luke, research. Writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, to lay out for us in these four accounts all that we need to know, all that God has for us to know about the resurrection of Jesus. All of that you see taking, taking place. And you know, if they were going to fabricate a story, if I was going to fabricate this story, at least if I were Matthew and John, I would have made myself look better than they make themselves look. I wouldn't have made myself so cowardly at the end. I, I wouldn't have made myself so, you know, relatively dense. I, I would have been the one that said after a couple of days of Jesus being died, hey, I remember he said he was going to rise from the dead. Let's go see. But, but, but none of that's in here. It just all says they were cowardly and, and none of them got it. And, and there isn't any really good thing to commend any of them. Even when they went, they wondered. Even when they heard about it, they wondered, could it really be so? Could it really be true? I, I think if I were going to concoct the story and have me in it, I would have looked better than that. And really, too, that you would never, especially in the context of that culture, have women who were the primary witnesses. Richard Bachman, who's a professor at St. Andrews in Scotland, who, by the way, was one of Kelly Liebengood's advisors. That's the only reason I mentioned his name. So if you see, see Kelly, tell him I referred to Bachman. He'll be proud of me. 
But Bachman makes the case, as he speaks about the resurrection of Jesus, that the cultural norm of the day of Jesus was that a woman could not bear witness of anything in a court of law. She just simply wouldn't be trusted. But yet here, the gospel accounts hinge, really, on the veracity of women. They were the first to see. They were the first to tell. And, and, and so everyone says, well, if you're going to concoct a story in that day and you want to convince people that Jesus has really risen from the dead, you wouldn't start out by saying it was the women who saw him, but they did. And why would they do that? Because it was true. That's how it happened. They could not say it that way. And even though perhaps there might have been some to say, let's not do that, because if you do that, no one's going to believe this. Still, still they did it. And then they listed people, real people, people you could check with to see, did this really happen this way? Were you really, really there? In fact, when, when Paul makes account of it in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, he says that Jesus appeared to 500 at, what time, at one time, many of whom, he says, are still alive. And, and, and so... Paul is essentially saying, go check with them. They saw it too, not just one, not just two. I mean, if it had just been a few, perhaps you would think it might have been some vision, some hallucination, something like that. But, but when it's 500, the same hallucination, 500 people all at once, that didn't even happen in the 60s. <laughs> what? So here you are. Plus, again, think of it. They had no category in their brain, nothing cultural, nothing intellectual, nothing really for many of them theological that would say that there could be a resurrection of one person, no matter who he is, from the dead. That wasn't part of their thinking. They weren't expecting that, that but yet it happened. And so, and then there was the tomb that was empty, and then the appearance of Jesus. You see, you need both of those together. If all you have is an empty tomb, you'd wonder what happened to his body. And if all you had is the appearances, but you had Jesus still in the tomb, you'd say, hmm. But appearances in an empty tomb, you go, oh, I get it. He's not there. He is, in fact, risen. Yes, there he is, Jesus. But as much as the scripture goes to such great length, to show that it's an historical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. The scripture goes to the same lengths or more to say that it's not only an historical reality, but it's a theological necessity that Jesus rose from the dead. Notice how the Apostle John puts it in his account that I, I read this morning, uh, verse 9. John chapter 20, verse 9. I'll start with verse 8 because the sentence begins there. But John writes... Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. You see, John said, listen, the scripture would tell you that he must rise from the dead. Isaiah chapter 53, and talking about this one who would die for the sins of others, who would take the iniquity upon himself, said that he would, in fact, rise, that God would not abandon him to the grave, that he would rise, he must rise from the dead, he had to, if he didn't rise from the dead, then really it was in fact all for naught, for Jesus, you see, to be who he claimed to be, for Jesus, to make good on all of his promises, he had to rise from the dead, in other words, if he didn't rise from the dead, then he would be an imposter, then 
Nothing he said that he would do was really, in fact, true. That's how Paul understands it. This passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, classic, when we speak of resurrection, not only the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of human beings. Uh, in fact, that's the point. The point that Paul is making here, the theme of this passage, is the resurrection of human beings, and he uses our understanding of the resurrection of Jesus to show that. Verse 14, though, he writes like this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, he said, listen, if Christ hasn't been raised, then everything we said is nonsense. Everything we have said is futile, is unhelpful, won't help you a bit. Your faith is, is all wrong. Don't believe it unless Christ has been raised. It's that crucial. He goes on to put it like this, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. In other words, he said, the guts of our message is that Jesus is raised. And if that's not true, then we're lying. We're misrepresenting the case. We're misrepresenting God. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, and even Christ has, um, and not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. In other words, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then there's been no real payment for your sins. It's that crucial. Verse 18, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, they've been condemned. Why? Because there was no one there to die for their sins. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. That is to say, Paul says, if this message isn't true, if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then people should look, us, look at us and pity us. You know, sometimes people have said, even if this Christianity thing isn't true, even if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, even if he wasn't the son of God, if, even if he didn't die for the sins of sinners, we should still follow his example. We should still follow his teaching. And Paul would say, to do that, you would be a fool. Because if he hasn't risen from the dead, then he has no authority, he has no more authority than you or me to lay out how anybody ought to live. So no, don't follow him. Not if he's not risen from the dead. That's everything. That's the verification of who he really is. George Latta, uh, what was George Latta? Theologian, Baptist theologian, wrote a book with an ambitious title called The Theology of the New Testament. It's a very good book. Died some time ago. Put it like this. He said, God did not make himself known through a system of, uh, of teaching, nor a theology, nor a book, but through a series of events recorded in the Bible. The coming of Jesus of Nazareth was the climax of this series of, of redemptive events. And his resurrection is the event that validates all that came before. If Christ is not risen from the dead, the long course of God's redemptive acts to save his people ends in a dead-end street in a tomb. If the resurrection of Christ is not reality, then we have no assurance that God is the living God, for death has the last word. Faith is futile because the object of that faith has not, validated, has not vindicated himself as the Lord of life. Christian faith is then incarcerated in the tomb along with the final and highest self-revelation of God in Christ. 
if Christ is indeed dead. We've said for years that Christianity is Christ. Meaning that if you take the person of Jesus of Nazareth out, we have nothing. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and find someone to say what Muhammad said and still have Islam. Take Buddha out of Buddhism and find someone to say, to do what Buddha did, and, and, and you still have Buddhism. You could go on and on with any ism you would like, but Jesus is unique, you see. There is no one who can say what he said without being who he was. There is no one who can do what he did without being who he was. See, one of the great enigmas about Jesus is here you have this man who walked around humbly, walked around with humility in his life and, and taught humility, and yet all of his teaching was egocentric. All of his teaching was self-centered. That's what was unique about Jesus. What was unique about Jesus wasn't the fact that he told people to love, was that he told people to love like he loved. It wasn't that he told people to honor God. He told people to honor God the way he honored God. Not only that, he said, if you honor me, you honor God. He said to people, your sins are forgiven. And he didn't just simply mean, oh, some of the stuff you've done against me. He said, the stuff that you've done against anyone, I have the authority to pronounce forgiveness on that. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And what he meant by that is, there's no spiritual nourishment apart from him. That is to say, the, the only way that you can be spiritually fed, he said, is through, by me. He said, I'm the light of the world. In other words, he says, you can't see anything unless you see it through me by way of what I illuminate, what I show. If you want to know God, you can only know God through the light that I give. No one else can give that light. If you want to know what life is, you can only know it through the light that I give through me. He said, I'm the door. That is, there's only one way to God, and it's through me. And there's only one way to be safe, and that is if you're enclosed by that which this door encloses me. He says, that's real, then, safety. He said, I'm the good shepherd. If you want to be nurtured and nourished and led and guided, it can only be by way of me. Follow me. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Meaning that if you believe in me, and if you die physically, you will still live. But all of that, he said, is connected to, who, to me, to who I am and your faith in me. There's no life, there's no resurrection, there's only death apart from me. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There isn't any other way to God except by me. There isn't any other truth. There's no other reliable one other than me to come to God. He said, I'm the life. There's no other life except the life that comes from me, the life that I give. If you want life, you can only come to me. Everything else is death, he said. 
I'm the true vine. Unless you're attached to me, you will die. Everything about Jesus' teaching was about himself, really. He said, trust me. Who else can say that kind of thing? I mean, you could say, we need spiritual nourishment. There it is. But can any of us, can anyone say, I'm that bread? We can all say we all need light in order to see God. Can any of us say, I'm that light? We all know that we need a way to get to God. Can anyone say it's through me? I'm the door. We all know that we need nurtured and kept. Can any one of us say, well, I'm the shepherd that can keep you on the right path so that you will meet God, you'll know him, you'll be his? We all know that we'll die. Can any of us say, trust in me and you'll live? We all know that, that there must be a way. Can we say, we're that way? We say, there is a way, but can we say, we're that way? We know there must be something we must trust in that's reliable, that we can follow. Uh, we can say, follow that, but can any of us say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm it, and on and on. No, no. Jeez, you take Jesus out of this, then we haven't got anything. But the question is, with him in, do we have anything? And the answer that God gives us is, is yes, of course. The reason is because he's risen from the dead. That proves who he is. That proves he's my son. When he rose from the dead, it's as if Jesus, it's as God the Father uh, reenacted that moment of Jesus' own baptism, and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, Here's how the apostle puts it in Romans in chapter 1. Paul starts out this letter to teach this church in Rome. And he said, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he pronounced beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He said this was it. This was God's announcement. He's the Lord. You remember how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2, that this very one, Jesus, who died, would be exalted and given a name that's above every name, that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, it was a victorious rising. It was this rising that says, I am the Lord. You can trust in me. You can trust everything that I've said. You can trust everything, you see, that I've done. And what he did, as we mentioned at our time of confession, what he did was die for the sins of sinners, pay for sins. You see, that's the problem, isn't it? The, the problem that keeps us from God, we know, is our sin. Thus, it puts us under his punishment, his wrath, he's just. So how is that going to be changed? How, how can we stand in the very presence of God? And God says, well, here's the way. A substitute will come. He'll die for you. He'll take the penalty. When Jesus said it was finished, what he meant was, I've paid it. In fact, the little Greek word there, teleos, means finished, paid in full. So that if you had purchased something that day, the local quick shop in Jerusalem, and you paid it, it could have stamped on it, teleos, paid in full. 
And so Jesus said, it is. It's, it's, it's paid in full, really. It really is. In fact, we read uh, a couple of pages over in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 29 of Jesus. He says, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, when he was raised, it was the announcement that we are justified. Our sins are forgiven. We can be declared righteous by God. And why is that so? Because you see, Jesus didn't stay dead. And he didn't stay dead because he didn't need to stay dead. Because he wasn't dying for his sins, but for the sins of others. Thus, when they were paid, he was, in fact, free to go. Now, what that means is this. As I mentioned during our time of confession, it means that if we trust in him, our sins are forgiven. Now, I mentioned there at our time of confession that sin. And I do that because I've been talking to people for a long time about life. And I say that because I know my own life. And I know that for each of us, there's that sin or that category of sins that plague us. We look back. Maybe it was something we said and maybe we wish we could take it back, but we can't. The person even we said it to has passed away. Maybe it's something we, we did and maybe nobody knows about it, but, but us. abortion maybe that theft maybe that unfaithfulness whatever it is we, we know what that is for each of us that sin that which plagues us perhaps even now that, that sin that we think of every time we sit down to confess every time we come in on a Sunday you know you try not to think about it but, 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 but no matter what it is no matter how many times you've confessed it it's that sin you think about your own person your own life but this is who I really am could it really be so that and the answer of Easter, the answer of resurrection, the answer of every moment of every day because Christ has risen, the answer that God gives to us is yes, in fact, when he rose, he paid. And the fact that he rose is the evidence that it really is paid. And so we need to think that often and always. When you think he's risen from the dead, what does that mean? What it really means is it really is paid in full. That sin. Now, I can't promise you that sin won't come back to your mind. <laughs> I can't promise you that every time you sit to confess that sin or that category of sin won't come back to your mind. I can't promise you that those sins like that won't continue to plague you even in the course of your own experience. But what I can promise you is this. You confessed To God, through this one who has died and been raised, it is forgiven. But you see, this resurrection, this theological necessity was not only so that our sins could be forgiven, but so we could have new life as well. For instance, in 1 Peter and uh, chapter 1, Peter writes this. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose in a, in a new body, and he rose in such a way that the scripture says new life 
this, this body of Jesus, this, this, this body and his life would be that body, that life that could live, be sustained in the very presence of God forever, that new life. And it's that new life that he was raised with that he came to give us, that new life that has died to sin, that new life that uh, has paid for the guilt of our sin, that new life that now lives no longer under the dominion of sin as we do, no longer enslaved by it, that new life that will one day for us know not even the presence of sin, that life. That's the life that Jesus talked about when Nicodemus, that man, came to him and said, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Tell me about that. And Jesus said, you must have new life. You must be born again. You must be born from above. It's that life that Jesus gained, got for us in his resurrection. And he says, I come to give you that life. It's spoken of in scripture in various places and in various ways. For instance, uh, in Ephesians and chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were made alive together with Christ. Alive, that life. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul speaks of it in Philippians chapter 3 as, as knowing, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. That, that the resurrection power that says sin's forgiven. The power of sin broken. And the kind of, he says, that's what I want to know. And that's the new life you see that Jesus has and gives to us. In fact, in Romans in chapter 6, Paul speaks of it like this, verse 5. He says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So Christ for us died, we with him. The power of sin dies so that we're no longer enslaved to it. For one who has died, he writes, has been set free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He said, listen, that's the life that we have. And we know that we don't get that life and stop sinning. But we know that we get that life and he tells us now to walk with him, forgiven with his spirit, that he'll give us increasingly enabling us increasingly to walk with him to keep from that sin, to keep from sinning. Not only that, but we know that this resurrection of Jesus ensures our own resurrection. He's the first fruit, the scripture says, of others who will come. And in part what that means is that a day will come when we too will die, we will live, and we'll be resurrected whole bodies, whole human beings. And we'll have that body that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that body that's imperishable, that's incorruptible, that body similar to the one that Jesus was raised with, so that we'll be able to live forever in the very presence of God.
but this and this will be last. But you see, what happens because of the resurrection of Jesus is that we realize that this is not the only life we will know. A day will come when we'll know a life free from the very presence of sin. And so we know that. And so we look upon those days knowing they will come. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no disappointment. There'll be no anything like that that makes us sad. And, and now in this life, there are things that make us sad. We, we have suffering, we have disappointment, disillusionments, confusions. There's loneliness. There's all kinds of issues. There's grief, there's pain, there's injustice. There's, you name it, we have it. But we know that a day will come when that won't be true. And so the scripture tells us that we're to grab the joy that will be there and import it to right now. We say, oh yes, whatever it is that we're dealing with that's difficult, whatever we're dealing with that's suffering, whatever we're dealing with that's disappointment, understand a day will come and we won't have that. So take a moment and think upon that and realize that. You can't deny the reality of what you're going through at the moment, but, but, but live now in the midst of also that which is to come because we must realize that whatever suffering we experience now will be glory on the new earth. Whatever suffering we experience now will be glory, will be glorious then. Do you remember when Jesus was resurrected and they saw him? He looked perfect, I'm sure, in every way, except he still had marks. He still had the scars of his suffering, his hands, his feet, his sides. They remember when he was experiencing those. They weren't pleasant at all. They weren't glorious at all. In fact, as I read through those accounts, every time I read them, my breath stops. I, I get caught up in the midst of that. And I think about the pain and the dishonor and all of that, the injustice of that, and think how horrible that is, the great suffering that that attests to. And, and, and it's not glorious at all. But when they saw him, and they saw the scars. They were glorious. Because then they knew what they meant. Then they knew what they had achieved. In fact, when John sees Jesus in the Revelation, he says he sees him as a lamb who had been slain. And so you get the sense that he still sees the marks, whatever that lamb part means, whatever he's seeing, he's no doubt seeing Jesus. He says, I see one of the lamb, the very lamb of God, given for us, taken for us, died for us, but sacrificed for us. But, but I see the scars as if he had been slain. And you get the sense at that moment in time that those scars are glorious. Do we realize that whatever is pain to us now, whatever is suffering to us now, Whatever is loneliness to us now, whatever is disappointment to us now, will be used by God in such a way in this life and the life to come that those scars, visible or not, I don't know, will be our glory. And we'll say, yes, look at who God is. Look at what he has done. We're fortunate in the church to have a resurrection Sunday once a week. We're fortunate 
in the history of the church to have an Easter Sunday once a year. We mustn't let any of those Sundays go by without knowing that he is in fact alive, he's risen, he's ruling and reigning, he will return. And because he's risen, we know that our sins indeed are forgiven if we trust in him. Even that sin, even those sins, forgiven. We know that this new life that he gives us enables us to pray and ask, oh God, help me in the midst of this sin. You said that the power of sin is broken. Please enable me to walk faithfully with you in this know that that new life is that resurrection life, that new life that we have from him. And we'll see it. We'll know it. We'll experience it over the course of our lives. And we do know that everything that causes grief in these days will be our glory. Because he'll make it such. So we needn't despair. We needn't think that all is lost, even in the midst of difficulties in this life because he'll redeem and that scar will be glorious in the world to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we take great comfort and confidence in knowing that Christ has, has risen. We know you've exalted him. He's at your right hand ruling and reigning even now that he's interceding for us, defends us at all times. And he does so as one who knows exactly our lives. So that we come through him knowing that we're accepted by you because of what he's done. And that we come to a throne, the very throne, the very rule of God that's a throne, that's a throne of grace. And so we come and we ask that you would help us in every time of need. Help us to believe, Father. Help us to maintain faith. Help us to trust us to trust all that is true because Christ has risen. Father, you've called us to live holy lives, lives that honor, that reflect you in a world that, that tempts us to go our own way, so we pray that you would strengthen us to resist these temptations that we may follow after you and you alone. We, we find difficulties in relationships and marriage and family and friendship. We pray that you would heal wounds, give us grace to love, to restore friendships, relationships. Father, many experience weakness in body. There's much sickness that slows us. There's disease that debilitates us and threatens to take our lives, bring healing, we pray, an awareness of your presence and even in these difficult times to know that all that we experience will be glorious one day. Father, we're grateful for all that you've done for us. We're grateful for, for babies, for new lives amongst us. We thank you for the little girl born to Brian and Julia Bands, the little boy born to Ethan and Mindy Harris, the little girl born to Tom and Amy Knudsen. Father, we're grateful for how you bless our our family, our congregation, to bring new life to us in this way. And we know our responsibility and we pray for these little ones and their parents and for us that we may all be, we may all be faithful. God, be with us. Be with us on this Sunday. May we as believers proclaim 
effectively and sufficiently that Christ has risen, that the world will know that. And many on this day will come to believe in Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us, that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Peace.